Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. This week we're going over chapters 4 and 5, and I'm asking you to skim both chapters. I don't need you to read every single word um, of these two chapters. I'm actually putting them together this week because we're going over... Um, a select few concepts out of both. So this lecture won't be very long. In fact, it's only to talk about um, a few different things and then you're going to go into one concept even further for your assignment this week. And so this week we're going over the environmental context and perceptual context. So we're talking about the environment and our perception and how our culture will influence both of those. Um, so we're going to start with the idea of housing and what housing is like in different cultures. Um, before the book gets into the idea of housing or built environments, it does go over natural environments, um, like the world um, around us, like the earth, how we interact with the earth around us, what we decide to um, keep as far as like plants and forests, what we decide to beautify, what we decide to modify, how it is that we interact with those surroundings. But I wanted to talk a little bit about housing to begin with. And to begin, I'd invite you to think about who lives in your household, what that looks like, because different cultures have different makeups of living environments. Uh, we did talk about individualistic and collectivist societies and what that looks like as far as who stays in the house for how long. So a lot of American families, um, kids will move out around 18 or so or when they're off to college. That's pretty normal. Whereas in some collectivist societies, in fact, most collectivist societies, kids stay at home during college. Um, and that's not something that's looked down upon. It's not because they're, they're losers or anything like that. It's because it's, it's what's expected. And that's what people do. And actually, a lot of people save money that way, and then move out of the house when they're, they're married, or they've gotten a job somewhere. So start by thinking about who lives in your house. What does that look like? Would it be weird if you were to to leave your house right now? Some of you listening to this probably live on your own and have already created your own family. Some of you don't have children, so think about it. In a lot of cultures, it's very common to have multiple generations in one house. And um, like the entire world, I finished watching Encanto like two weeks ago, and it's about a Colombian family. And in the house, there are several generations so uh, an example of that would be the family madrigal but i want to move on and talk specifically about housing and privacy you're going to see that there's a diagram of some navajo housing um, i also put something up on our module about navajo housing and we can see how values are reflected in the house so go through those diagrams look at it but i want to talk about um some muslim homes because it is mentioned in our chapter and i think i've mentioned that i did live in the middle east for several years i was teaching at a university there so i'd like to talk about something some of the living quarters and um the housings or, or dwellings in saudi arabia to be specific when it came to 
houses in Saudi Arabia, a lot of times families lived together um, multiple generations in the household. There were even times when there were plots of land and there were different houses on that same plot of land. Um, Think like a compound. There's, you know, grandma and grandpa over here and there is a sister's family and then the brother's family. And these are really big families in Saudi Arabia. And I'll also remind you a lot of families that um, the men have multiple wives. It's definitely not the most common thing in Saudi. Like it's more common for someone to have just one wife, but uh, it is allowed in Saudi Arabia. And I, I did see it pretty often. I had students that had uh, dads that had other families that they'd never even met before. Um, not the dads. The dads, of course, had met those families, but my students, for example. And it wasn't seen as, as something, you know, weird or different. It's, it's an, ex- an accepted part of society, but um, that's something to consider as well, that multiple wives oftentimes will live in the same compound, but not necessarily the same house. But the biggest feature that I would discuss or highlight here would be privacy and a differentiation between um, perceived gender. So oftentimes, walking into a Saudi household, there would be a private room for women and that room would be pretty closed off and oftentimes there would even be a sort of um, barrier between that and the door just in case a man were to come in the woman uh, the women within that room would know that a man were about to enter the room this is because Muslim women are free to not be veiled or have a hijab or a head covering when they're around other women so totally not a problem women can wear you know fancy dresses and and beautiful outfits and and show skin and all of that um, if they're in company of other women and so the houses are built to reflect this the private area for women oftentimes the men's area isn't as private um and there's a majlis which is really like a um a, a gathering room and in Arab societies, this room generally goes untouched uh, until company comes over and then it's used, right? Because it's a place that's always there to to meet guests. And in that culture as well, if somebody comes over, hospitality is the first thing that you want to pay attention to. So if someone drops by unannounced, it's come on in, have a seat. And um, there's, there's quite a bit of patience with that, but they're always ready to accept guests. Later, when we talk a little bit about different views of times, uh, you'll see how this goes together uh, as far as being pretty flexible around receiving guests in, in someone's household. Even the university where I worked had separate buildings for men and women. And here we see the concept of privacy and modesty because the men's buildings were were pretty open, pretty airy. Uh, there certainly wasn't anything hidden. 
I went into several men's buildings for different meetings. I know that my female students never went into those buildings, but it wasn't against the rules for a woman to enter if she needed to. However, in the women's buildings, men were prohibited to enter. No men could enter the women's buildings. On the few occasions where men did have to enter a building, I remember one time we needed an electrician or something, and um, one time there was a, a guest speaker. Men were allowed to enter, but before entering, they would walk into an area that was like off to the side, and there were secure women security guards standing there uh, in their hijab, right, uh, to make sure that anybody who came in was only a woman, right, to make sure no men entered accidentally. And when the men that were supposed to come in did try entering, they would say, okay, give us 10 minutes. And they would go on to every floor and say, hey, there's a man coming, there's a man coming. And everyone would cover up um, in order to be you know, modest and not show their hair. So women would be, oh, oh, and they'd cover up and and then the men would come in and after the men left, women would uncover again. So um, again, we're seeing this modesty and this privacy around uh, women and what what they show in front of men. And when it comes to this also, I'll point out that men weren't telling women to cover up. It was um, something that women did because they didn't want those men to see them. So I know it's kind of hard to imagine that, but women would rush to to cover up when there was a man that came inside the building. And um, even the buildings themselves were different. I know that in the building in which I worked, we'd have the windows open sometimes, but um, not completely open. In fact, there were several times when I'd open the window completely and I'd sit in it when I was teaching because it would often get hot, right? It's in the middle of the desert. And I was fine with that. I was okay with people seeing my hair or not seeing me wearing my um, abaya, which is like the outer covering that people often wear, um, or wearing the hijab. It didn't bother me because I have a different idea of what's appropriate and what's modest. And uh, for me, if someone were to look inside and see me, I didn't think um, it would look bad necessarily because I was inside and I certainly wasn't like advertising myself. When I was outside, I would cover um, completely in order to be respectful to the culture and not stand out. But I'd sit in the window sometimes as I taught and it wasn't an issue. But my students um, oftentimes would avoid going past that open window when I was teaching to not be seen by people outside. So very different than Big Bend Community College where People don't have to announce their entry um, due to gender and and there aren't people covering up when certain people come inside the room, but certainly the buildings around there were very gendered and especially when it came to women, very private. And a lot of Muslim houses, there's also dedicated space to prayer. And I want you to think about different religions that exist and how that might be portrayed or represented in the built environment. So for example, a Hindu household might have a shrine to a god that they go to each day and they pray. A Chinese family might have a shrine to their ancestors as well. 
Um, I know I've gone to several places that are restaurants. I know I went to the mechanic last week and there was a, a shrine for their family that was very prominent in the um, entrance and they had food that they had offered to this um, thing that was built for their their ancestors and so that's something to consider as well and then also think about towns and the way that they are built Um, if you go to the midwest you're going to find a million churches that's an exaggeration but a lot of churches in one town if you go to mexico generally um at the plaza is going to be some central kind of cathedral catholicism is generally very important and so we can also see that our towns are built around certain things as well and so think about religion values privacy think about um what people do to rest or to have fun some places are much more private also as far as interacting with neighbors some people enjoy having time outside on their their back deck being in close proximity to other people other families outside other families are very private whereas they might not interact very much with neighbors and the fences might be um even blocking them from their sight. So so think about that and take a minute to think about your house, the way it's set up, what that might reflect. Does your house have an office inside it? Does your house have a, a playroom for kids? The next topic I'd like to touch on would be time orientations, specifically monochronic time orientations and polychronic time orientations. Generally, cultures share the same ideas around um, time and how time is spent and the way that we think about time. So in monochronic cultures, we generally do things one at a time. So, you know, having a meal and then going to work, coming home, going to the gym, uh, and then maybe going out with friends later at night. Time is dedicated to one task or one purpose that doesn't mean that it's always that way you might take a call during dinner but generally it's it's focusing on on one task or one priority whereas in polychronic cultures things are done at the same time several things are done at the same time um and interruptions might not be considered an interruption see i come from a monochronic culture and and using even the word interruption might be a bit ethnocentric of me because I'm assuming that you know it's something that that disrupts from your your progress or your time but a polychronic culture might just see it as 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 an addition another part of of their day right I had talked a bit about the idea of receiving guests and how in a lot of um, Arab cultures and Muslim households, um, guests are received in a very hospitable way. And it's welcome in, have a seat, would you like some tea? Here's stuff I just threw together, you know, let me grab this, are you hungry? And I think we've all been around cultures where we've seen this kind of hospitality before. When I lived in Bolivia, 
I was in a city called Santa Cruz. And in this city, the motto was, La hospitalidad es la ley. So hospitality is the law. And in this culture, if somebody stopped by, it wouldn't be like, why didn't you call? Like, I'm on the way out right now. It would be, I haven't seen you in a long, come on it. How have you been? That kind of thing. Can I get you a drink? Bring out, you know, um, some snacks. I'm, I'm on my way out, but um, let's chat. And then they'd, they'd stay and they'd chat. And time wasn't adhered to the same way that it would be in, in the United States in a professional setting, for example. So in the U.S., if you have a meeting at 9 a.m., you're probably going to be there a little bit before 9 a.m. We are a monochronic culture overall, though we talked about microcultures and subcultures, and within those cultures in the U.S., you can still see polychronic tendencies, right? If there is a meeting at nine, uh, and the country I'm using as an example uh, as Bolivia, right? People might come in a little bit later. They might start gathering at nine. They might stop to pick up something um, to bring and share as breakfast as well, and it might not be seen as um, being unprofessional is, is more or less accepted. And that can be difficult if you're somebody from a monochronic culture living there. And also think about when groups come together to do work in the U.S. or anywhere in the world for that matter, and there are people from different time orientations. So if you've got two monochronic people and two polychronic people, there probably will be some some small issues that need to be ironed out. As a person that belongs to a monochronic culture but has lived in several polychronic cultures before, personally, I'm much more polychronic than I am uh, monochronic. And that's something that my friends have noticed about me. And if we're all meeting... At 9 p.m. at a restaurant uh, or something like that, they're going to tell me we're meeting at 8.30 p.m. Now, the funny thing is, I know that when they tell me 8.30 p.m., it means that they're going to gather a little bit later. But I (laughs) end up getting there around 9 either way. So it's not impossible to work together and to come to an agreement. Uh, But by telling me an earlier time, I know that my friends are making a bit of a... Um, a flexible kind of plea to me saying, hey, this is Melissa time, but the rest of us will be getting there a little bit later. And, and it works out well, but they understand that, that I have that, that difference or that would work pretty well in other cultures, but not so much here. So I hope that makes sense. Um, you're going to notice that monochronic cultures generally happen in societies that are more individualistic, whereas polychronic cultures happen in more collectivist societies. Um, In those societies that are polychronic as well, oftentimes relationships are uh, a little more valued, I would say, than personal time. And so that's something to consider as well. In this discussion, though, in in every discussion that we have, I want you to remember that it's not that something's better than the other one, right? It's not that polychronic is better because relationships are valued more. But it's important for us to know the differences that we embody 
especially when we're coming together as a group. Because when it comes to intercultural communication and being competent intercultural communicators, we want to think about those things that are different that exist within us and exist within others. So if I just assume that because I've grown up in a monochronic, uh, sorry, monochronic culture, everyone else in the world is like that. And then I'm living in, you know, let's say I'm living in Argentina and I show up to a work meeting at nine and nobody else is there. Instead of saying, how could they, how could they waste my time? Time is money. Like I respect them by being here on time. How could they not respect me by being here on time? Um, I could think, wow, is there something that maybe I didn't consider when I showed up on time? And then I could even discuss that. Hey, I was here at nine. Um, I kind of thought we'd all be here at the time that we agreed upon. Why, why did you come a little later and, and kind of discuss that and find things out? Because when it comes to intercultural communication, there are going to be misunderstandings, right? But if we come in knowing that there's going to be misunderstandings, we open up that conversation and we ask questions without being judgmental. And we think the way that I see the world is is one way, but it's been formed because of my my upbringing, my background, my culture. The way that I see the world is pretty close to the way that people around me see the world. But there are people living in totally different cultures that might see things very differently. In fact, some cultures don't have a very fixed concept of time um, and their schedules will look a little bit different than schedules in monochronic cultures. Some people's schedules are going to be more about the seasons and what's being harvested and and what can be done that day. If you live in the Amazon rainforest, um, the sunny, dry season is going to look a lot different than the wet and rainy season because there are certain activities you can do during one that you can't do during the other. Sometimes it's going to be a good time for hunting and for making sure that you have food that you're planting and growing, whereas other times it might be um, better to focus on building um building places to live around you or um, working on crafts inside. And when I say crafts, I mean like building um, utensils or eating ware, that kind of thing. In our next chapter on uh, the perceptual context, where we're talking about perception, it's important to know that we can all see the same exact event and perceive it in a different way. Um, when we're talking about event, we can say a stimuli. For example, a stimuli would be a child screaming. Uh, we hear the noise, and when we hear the noise, the first thing we do is we register that, right? Ooh, big noise, and then we might look to see where it's coming from. We see that it's coming from a child across the mall, and then we essentially um, make sense of that or even kind of judge whether something is good bad, neutral. So um, I might be sitting inside the food court at the mall. I hear that. I register it. And then I think, 
oof, like that's that's kind of annoying, honestly. If you've ever ridden on a plane before or a bus, you know that crying children can be annoying. And actually, even the way that we raise children um, is is very different in other cultures. For example, I've noticed that in some Western and, and European cultures, we expect kids to be very polite for their age and almost a bit adult-like, right? Um, and so um, yelling or, or screaming or playing really loudly, we might say like, hey, can you keep it down? Like we're in public, that kind of thing. Whereas other cultures generally think like, yeah, it's a kid. Kids yell, kids play around, let them do what they want to do as long as they're not harming anyone, right? And so if you're at a a nice restaurant in let's say Moses Lake and a kid is watching a video super loud and laughing along their kid their parents might be like hey be quiet keep it down um and you might even perceive it as kind of rude or why did why did they bring their kids here like I'm on a date and then this kid is being super annoying whereas in another culture um it might be perceived as as just normal and so when someone hears that noise instead of feeling a bit frustrated or aggravated, they might just be like, yeah, yeah, there's there's a kid. And so um, the perception of the same exact event might be seen differently by people from different cultures. And a lot of that has to do with the way that, that you were raised. Because if you were a child and you were told to to be quiet and not make loud noises in public, you you internalize that as, okay, being super loud in public, not a good thing. And so when you're sitting there and you hear that loud noise, you think, ooh, not a good thing, annoying, rude. Um, whereas if you were allowed to do that as a kid and it was never corrected or seen as a bad thing, you're probably not going to think of that when you see it either, right? There are filters when it comes to our perception. And those filters, I'm looking at our book, sorry, um, are physiological, sociological, and psychological. And we talked a little bit about this when we talked about communication mo- um, communication models. Physiological, of course, um, has to do with our physical being. A pretty recent and personal example um, from my life would be when a friend of mine uh, was recovering from COVID, she still couldn't smell anything. And some people walked by with a very, very strong cologne on. And I said, oh, did you smell that? And she was like, smell what? And then I remembered physiologically, she no longer had the sense of smell. Um, So just on that level, when the group of people walked by, I noticed something. I picked something up physiologically that she did not pick up. If you have chronic migraines, you're probably going to be much more sensitive to the kind of lights that are in a certain environment. So um, I get migraines a lot. And when I walk into a Costco, it is horrible. It's one of the worst things ever. The lights are just bright and um, absolutely horrible. And I've mentioned to people before, like, oh, I cannot stand the lights at Costco. And I've had people say, like, what are you talking about? I don't, I've never even seen the lights at Costco, right? And it's because physiologically, they don't, um, they don't perceive it the same way I do. Because I, of course, am going to notice that because my body is affected by that. But if their body's not affected by that, they probably will not see the 
lights the same way I do or even notice them at all. There's a really good figure on page 160, um, actually two figures, figure 5.1 and 5.2, that help us figure out how we process things and then how we perceive them. So another example would be um, smelling. And smelling is a really interesting one because we can think of different scents that exist. If you go into any Sephora or Ulta or Nordstrom, a place that's selling perfumes and colognes, you're going to notice there's quite a difference in colognes that are marked for women and colognes that are marked for men. Or sorry, generally we say perfume for women and cologne for men. Uh, whereas in other countries, it's not the same. It's not the same way at all. So we might smell something that's a bit more musky or peppery and think like, oh, this is a, a masculine scent. Um, whereas things that are more flowery flowery would generally be seen as, as a feminine scent. Um, but who came up with that and who decided what scent was for who? But being in this culture i think that that most of us have kind of just learned that through growing up that different scents are categorized in different ways but not every country and every culture sees it that way you can go to um africa for example and look at different scents that exist and scents that we might perceive as pretty feminine will probably be available for everybody. Um, and I've been in countries where men call what they wear perfume even. So we're going to get in a lot more into gender in the next chapter. But I want you to think about all of these concepts that we have, all of these categories that exist, and where it is that we learned these. Even when it comes to body types and um, why why we think what we think and, and why we categorize things the way we do. When it comes to categories, generally we have that as human beings through something called cognitive schemata. And these are kind of like file folders in our brains that exist. And there are stereotypes that have been passed along Maybe not something that's been told to us explicitly, but something we've seen uh, through media, for example, like uh, body types that are beautiful or what is seen as beautiful, what is seen as not desirable, not attractive, um, different stereotypes about races, about belief systems, all of that. Right? We also have things called prototypes that we have categories for. And a prototype is the kind of the best of a category uh, or a list of items. So we have an idea of what's the ideal um, romantic partner, maybe, or the best kind of teacher that we could have. Uh, those are prototypes that exist that we use to kind of measure things up. But I want us to think a little bit about stereotypes that exist the chapter goes into racism and ethnocentrism we've already covered that a little bit and i'm gonna leave that for a couple more chapters in and uh, we will get into gender some next week but um start thinking about the messages that you see in the media 
in regards to things that are good, things that are bad, things that are desirable, things that are ugly or gross, and ask yourself why that message is being portrayed that way and why it is that we're being taught to categorize things the way that we do. A lot of our lessons have talked about the way that we grow up, the lessons that we've received, and the way that we view the world because of those lessons. But I don't want this to sound like whatever you're taught growing up is the way that you see the world 100%, because that's not true. Um, Even though your parents and um, your community might have given you certain messages and even been pretty persuasive or persistent about those messages, you are your own being and you're able to think, you're able to challenge, you're able to say, why am I being um, taught this as something true? And I want you to know that it's okay to challenge things that you've been taught growing up. And some of the things you've been taught you're going to find are things that you definitely agree with and you will just strengthen that and um, you'll continue on in your life. But there might be some things that you challenge and you find out you don't agree with and that's okay as well. Uh, This week's assignment actually is created with the intention of you kind of looking into different beliefs that you might hold and not even know that you hold. And it's around something called implicit bias. And we're going to get into that more as we continue on. But um, check out our Canvas site, see what I've posted on implicit bias, and approach this assignment with an open mind. Uh, You'll see that I write quite a bit about the idea of this implicit bias test. And um, to be super clear, you're not going to get a result that says like, congrats, you're a racist or something like that. But you might find that it says something that you hadn't considered before as a result, right? So um, don't worry, there are different reasons that we get different results when it comes to this implicit bias, te- implicit bias test. Um, but just take it and see what comes up and, and then think about why you perceive things the way that you do, right? Another thing is it is Lunar New Year, and uh, people are celebrating all over the world. So please read those articles as well. And there will be a mini reflection on that also. So think about these things, go over the chapter, and we will all chat on Thursday during office hours. If you feel like joining, if you don't feel like joining, that's okay. Everyone have a great week. And um, like I said, happy, happy Lunar New Year.